From the pages of the Salt Lake Tribune, straight to your earphones, this is Tribune Sports Radio. Please hang up and try again. this thing started here. Uh, welcome to episode 31 of Tribune Sports Radio. I'm your host, Ben Raskin. Uh, we got a great show for you today, but before I introduce the panel, let me uh, remind everybody to go to iTunes. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Per usual, all we ask for is a five-star rating, and then you're free to kill us in the comment section. Um, and please uh, follow the show on Twitter at Tribune Sports Radio. We're doing a barn burner of a promotion. Uh, Follow us and we'll follow you back. Uh, it's a place to get the questions to the hand of the panelists in the, in the easiest way. Uh, today on the show, we have our old pal, Kevin Winter Morris. How you doing, buddy? And uh, the sports editor of the, Tribune, <laughs> the Salt Lake Tribune and the only person that scares me at the Gateway Mall, Mr. Joe Bear. How are you doing, Joe? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Uh, before we get started, it's like I've worked as a stringer for you for about three and a half years now, but I really don't know much about your background. Uh, when did you start with the Tribune, and uh, what, uh, how long have you been the editor of the, uh, the sports section? Um, I am in my sixth year as sports editor. I think mm -hmm. six and a half, actually. It's going on seven now. Uh, started as the sports editor in 2008, mm -hmm. uh, like the day before the uh, Beijing Olympics started. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that was my uh, introduction. Uh, but I've been at the paper uh, over 30 years. 30 years? Uh, I uh, have kind of run the gamut. I got hired as a, as a news side reporter covering uh, communities. Um, did that for a while. After a couple years, they moved me to sports where I covered the high schools for a few years. Minor league uh, hockey, uh, moved on up to Utah State, uh, football and basketball. Then I had, in the 90s, I covered uh, pretty much Utah and BYU, mm -hmm. uh, football and basketball. Uh, helped out a little bit with the Jazz during their finals runs. Uh, and then I had kids and had this second life <laughs> where I, I moved back over to the new side and I uh, covered Salt Lake County government for a few years. I covered... Uh, I covered uh, the census and growth issues, and I covered the environment and public lands. And then I became an editor over there uh, on the news side, was the news editor over uh, government and, uh, and environment. And uh, then in 2008, they gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. Yeah. And so I'd come back to sports. How great was uh, to start your career, though, working as the preps reporter here, and then kind of just seeing, running the gambit, like you said, getting up to the, the main desk here? Oh, it, it, you know, it's been a great ride. I mean, uh, you know, everybody should have to cover the preps. Yeah. And, and, you know, some guys love the preps that they make a career out of it. And, uh, you know, that's awesome. Um, because the biggest, the big thing about the preps is you got to love the preps when you're covering them. You yeah. got to have that enthusiasm. You got to have that excitement. Because for a lot of people, it's a it's a really big deal, and uh, you know I'm getting a taste of that you know as sports editor again because uh, you know I interact with uh, with the preps in terms of uh, planning our coverage and kind of kind of overseeing very loosely uh, our assistant sports editor Eric Walden and his team, and mm -hmm. so I'm I'm not involved a lot day to day with the preps, but. I've got uh, a pretty good feel and a pretty good sense of what's going on in the big picture. And uh, I now have a prep athlete so at home, so uh, oh, I'm connected that way. Congratulations. 
Thank you. Are we going to be getting uh, him or her on uh, on the podcast <laughs> on, in between the pages of the Tribune? There you go. There you go. How is uh, I, I think uh, for me, it's been really wonderful get, working my way in here with Daniel White, was the assistant sports editor, and uh, you know, it's preps is both probably the best proving ground to learn how to write, to follow deadline, to make deadlines, uh, to learn the form, and just kind of get your feet wet in the reporting it, to become a, a professional reporter, do it for a living, but. The thing that I really liked most about it was the access. It's like uh, when we listen to Aaron Falk or Tony Jones talk about the Jazz, like these guys are kind of reserved, pulled back, very cautious of what they talk about. But you know, just this week, me interviewing a bunch of girls to do the the all all the Tribune All State uh, soccer team. It's like it's amazing what the parents will tell you, the coaches tell you, the girls will tell you, and it's almost like you edit out so much good stuff because of the access to. It's, it's kind of the one place in the sports universe where you still have all access, uh, where you can go watch practice, where you can go uh, interview uh, players and coaches, mm-hmm. kind of get to know people a little bit. Uh, you know, so much of uh, college and professional sports now has been kind of roped off. You have very, uh, you know, relatively few opportunities to talk to the people you're covering. And... Uh, you know, in high school, it's still kind of an open field, so to speak. And, uh, you know, the high schools are the source of many, many great stories, uh, including at this newspaper. Um, I'll, point to the, I'll point to this, the package of stories we did last year on the uh, how the Pacific Island uh, boom in this state has yeah. altered prep football probably forever. Uh, you know, Utah was a real backwater for high school football. And now it's... Uh, you know, it's a destination. Absolutely. Uh, Joe, you know, and it's something we've talked about before um, in here with with Matt Piper and, and Kyle about um, where they stopped going to practice with the Utes. Over the years, when do you think that that started happening, where that access, wh- whether it be at the pros or the college level, stopped happening? When, when, when did you kind of notice it really shift from? Oh, I, I think you can almost tie it directly to social media. Yeah. Uh, Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, Mm -hmm. Snapchat, when all this stuff started coming online and you all of a sudden had, you know, amateur journalists showing up at practice saying, I've got a blog on college football. I'd like to be credentialed to cover you guys. Yeah. Uh, I think the whole, the whole scene changed because, because you went from, if you, let's just say you're covering Utah football and you're Liz Abel, who's the longtime sports information director there. Well, she went from dealing with two or three newspapers and three or four TV stations mm-hmm. and maybe a couple of sports talk radio stations yeah. to, you know, maybe as many as 40 or 50 outlets right. uh, wanting a piece yeah. of their time. Yeah. And uh, I think in the wake of that and, and because of, you know, honestly, I don't want to, I don't want to condescend to the bloggers, mm-hmm. but you know, there's some sometimes some stuff gets thrown out there onto the web that probably shouldn't be out there, and uh, that, that's just flat out wrong. Yeah. When people are in the kind of the rumor business mm-hmm. and will publish, regardless of you know, you know, what we go through a process to ensure that what we're putting out is correct. Well, the bloggers and tweeters of the world they're under no such restrictions, and so. All of a sudden, you had all this stuff going out that maybe wasn't necessarily correct. Uh, maybe the subject matter was a little, and 
Yeah. Um, and so I think the clampdown really, really started then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was a very, I, I'd say in the last five years, the, 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 the landscape has really, really changed. Yeah. So something I've always been really curious about is in the role of the sports editor for the paper, how do you view Twitter with your <coughs> staff writers? You know, because you uh, follow a guy like Tony Jones, you know, he's great. You know, so much inside, he puts a lot of himself into his tweets when he's talking about covering a jazz game or even a game that he's not actively doing there. But is, is it a directive of the reporters to be doing play-by-plays with the Twitter or – do you feel sometimes that distracts them from actually maybe? I'm not. I'm not the game? big on play-by-play. I'm bigger on analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think tweeting 120 characters <laughs> on Derek Favors making a basket at the Jazz game is necessarily enlightening. Yeah. Um, observations are enlightening during the course of a game. Like our tuba watch. Um, <laughs> I think so. The only thing I tell my people is that whether you're on Facebook or you're on Twitter, the same journalistic standards apply, mm-hmm. you know? So don't put something on Twitter that you wouldn't feel comfortable putting in your story, you know? Yeah, because yeah. it's all it's all the Salt Lake Tribune. Mm-hmm. You're tweeting as a reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. So keep that in mind when you tweet. Yeah. But, you know, I encourage, you know, I encourage our folks to be active on social media because that is how you engage readers. I mean, and that is how readers are looking at our content now is via Twitter, via Facebook. And, it's um, and so you've got to be active out there, uh, but you just have to do it in a way that that's professional and that you're applying the same standards that you would to anything that is published. Would you encourage would you encourage the reporters to not maybe even make uh, observations, but to actually write baby blogs to tie up with the website to actually draw the readers from the Twitter? You sound like Chris Camerani now. Well, it's, hey, it's You're great. getting on the Chris Camerani kick. I agree with, I agree with Chris on this, though. <laughs> ba- what do you mean baby blogs? Well, um, put something up on the website for the, at saltlaketribune.com as opposed to giving just a tweet out there, you know, 140 characters of some information. For example, uh, hypothetically, Derek Favors has a torn ACL, you know, as opposed to saying, like, here's a uh, breaking news about Derek Favors' uh, health condition and then li- link it to a blog on the, uh, the website. Well, I, I think that happens. Yeah, it I don't mean, know, I, quite a, all, all the time. Too. I think that happens. I mean, the problem you face if you're a writer covering a game is there's only so many things you can do at once and still watch the game yeah, yeah. and be able to write about what you're seeing. So, you know, uh, you know, we 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 want our guys on Twitter. We want our guys posting to the blog. You mm-hmm. know, I'm big on many many blog posts. In fact, it's something I gotta kind of remind folks about. Hey, keep the blog going, keep it churning, no mm-hmm. matter how. If it's a two sentence update on something, put it on the blog. Yeah. Because, because blogs only work. If you're updating them, yeah, you know, if they just sit stagnant for five days, and people keep going back to them, well, they're gonna quit going back to them. Well, I mean, as a blogger outside of the paper, it's like if I don't put something up once a week, readership drops, you know, yeah. it, it plummets, yeah. you know, and, and I don't even have that many readers to begin with, you know. Yeah, so, so you know, it's really a different gig now from when I was a sports writer. Yeah. I mean, when I wrote, I wrote a story, and that was pretty much it. I had most of the day to write it. I'd go to practice. If I had a you know a story off of practice, I'd turn it in at six o'clock at night. Um, didn't have to worry about you know unless it was really uh, you know if it was something that broke late at night. Then you're 
you're working late at night, but if it broke in the morning, you got all day to develop that story. Yeah, that's true. And that's just not true anymore. These guys are working, you know, I don't want to say literally, but the time they get out of, roll out of bed to the time they knock off for the day, which can be eight o'clock at night, they're, they're doing stories, they're doing tweets, they're doing blog posts, they may be doing well, video. It's, ins- it's insane, you know, because I'm buddies with Kyle outside of here. And, you know, Kyle, it's like what you said. He wakes up in the morning and with his two phones, he's on Twitter and he's scouring the Internet, you know, just checking every single update. And I always worry sometimes, and I'm not talking smack on Kyle, but when you're so saturated with information, like it seems to me like it's really difficult to sort of, you know, ascertain which is the best pertinent information. And what is just somewhat filler, 140 characters that doesn't, you know, just crummy observation it doesn't need to be put out there yeah i guess my golden rule on that is what moves the story forward yeah you know does it move I've, the story forward does it move your coverage forward if it doesn't move the coverage forward then don't worry about it you know yeah. but because there's so you're right there's so much out there you've got to be able to distinguish the wheat from the chaff and focus in on what's really important and the pros and the amateurs you know like yeah. it's it's amazing that you know you just recently, you know, someone pranked a fireball whiskey, this thing out there, this thing, it had antifreeze in it. You know, what it was, it was a blogger that basically got picked up by, I think it was dead spin that got it spun out of control. And next thing you know, somebody who's making a joke, you know, it's running in papers, which it was not the case. It did not have antifreeze in fireball, you know. But, yeah. yeah. But um, kind of moving on. So were you here during the 2002 uh, Winter Olympics, right? It was. Uh, that's that's when I fell in love with Salt Lake City. You know, for me, I think there's a Mason-Dixon line for citizens that have been in this town long enough. It's like, were you here before the games and then were you here after the games? And experiencing the games just in the service side of it was amazing. What was a, Give me a kind of a couple of stories or your impressions about what it was like having the world come to Utah. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll just say, first of all, that uh, the city was transformed by the Olympic Games. Mm. I don't think there's any question about that. If you lived here before the games... Um, you know it's different now. Um, you know, my, my memories of it is just Main Street being packed downtown every day. It looked like Manhattan every yeah. day. Uh, you know, you go to the venues and, uh, you know, just the diversity of nationalities, uh, the party aspect to it. Everybody who came treated it like a big party. Yeah, they and did. And it was just a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous time for everybody involved. Whether you were up on the mountain covering um, an event or down in the city covering uh, kind of the off-field stuff. Yeah. And we, and we really, when we covered it, we really, it was like two sections every day. We had a sports section no. that covered the competitive aspects. But then we had a whole different section that just covered kind of off-the-field stuff. Uh, yeah, I remember stuff. that. Because there was just so much going on. And uh, what I remember is just having a ton of fun. I mean, we were working it, and we were working hard. But, you know, everybody had a really good time, you know. And, uh, and I, you know, you, you look at this city now uh, over 10 years later, and uh, it was a transformative experience uh, for everybody. I uh I float this idea around with friends and stuff like that, but I'm, I'm a firm believer in it. You know, they just today they announced the four cities are looking to be hosting a summer game. So it's L.A., Boston, Washington, San Francisco. I don't know why Sam, uh, Salt Lake City can't be a part of that. I don't, 
Stop laughing, Kevin. No, <laughs> no. But I'm a, I'm a big. I think that. Well, like the summer games. Uh, summer games. You know, I think we have the city. I think we have the city that could do it. Throw a velodrome and a tennis facility, and very easily we could be able to kind of. I think we could host it. Boy, you know, the summer. I, I I'm going to respectfully disagree. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You don't please, even have to do it respectfully. No, you don't have to respect. Please you don't. Know, you know the, su- the summer. Ga- the summer games are about three times the size yeah. of the winter games. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think there's enough hotel rooms here. Uh, I don't think there's enough infrastructure here. Uh, I just logistically, man, I mean, get back to me in 50 years. Uh, because, <laughs> because by then, maybe the city will have grown to that point. Yeah. But right now, um, that is just such a completely different deal from the winter games. And the winter, look, the winter games are, are huge. And... Uh, you, you look at the price tag for these things, and uh, it's, it's incredible. A, it's, a, it's almost absurd. You know, I, I think we can say pretty accurately that if Salt Lake wanted to bid again on the Winter Games, if the U.S. decides to throw its hat in, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think a lot of people would look at Salt Lake City because it would kind of be an easy get yeah. in terms of staging the games because so much of the infrastructure is built already. And, and, and essentially two more hotels is all you really need. Yeah. So I think, I think revisiting the winter games, uh, you know, I think there's, a, there's some sentiment to do that. I think people had such a positive experience with the first time around that I think there'd actually probably be political support to do it again. Mm. Did you get? Uh, did you suffer post game depression? And I'm not saying you know like you had to go to the couch, but it, uh, for me personally, it was it was amazing that you worked for the 17 days as hard as you can. And then everyone, we don't talk about the Paralympics coming. You know, what was it two weeks? Two weeks after it was two weeks after that, which was yeah, I'd say about a third of the excitement. You know, but it was oh, not it's a, it's, it's less than maybe that. a seventh. You know, the whole town. What I remember about that was the whole town just completely emptied out. Yeah, in the span of about two days. It was, and we were over on the office was over on Main Street. Then, I remember that, oh. and it was just startling, you know mm-hmm. how you looked out the window one day and it was just jam packed, and you know the Tuesday after the games were over, it was just back to being kind of a semi-empty, s- a sleepy, and, yeah, sleepy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, there was definitely a hangover. Yeah. There was definitely a hangover. Yeah, I definitely had that for that. Uh, do you remember? Did you cover, were you just working the desk at the time, or were you actually uh, covering games? I, because I was on the news side at that time, I was I was I was part of the Olympic coverage, but I wasn't at the I wasn't covering events. So we, uh, I was covering kind of city aspect of it. Okay, what was going on around town? Got to hit a couple hospitality houses. That nice, kind of <laughs> nice. And the, the great thing for me was I got to actually go to events as fans, oh, so. which is great. So I saw the ski jumping. I saw. Short track. I saw the um, Palo Antonio. I saw the gold medal hockey game out at the oh uh, the Canadian was, USA game. What was then the East Center yeah. closing ceremonies? I covered. So it was it was it was it was great fun. Yeah, um, my uh, I only went to two events during that time, but my uh, the, the it was the doubles luge up at the uh, Parley's Junction, and uh, it was great because they would they were like now it's now racing from the United States, Baird and Kevin Winter Morris, you know, and then. There'd be a round of applause. He would go up there. But when the Jana- uh, Jamaicans were announced, they ended up playing Bob Marley's Stir It Up. And I remember that <laughs> moment where there was 4,000 people dancing and you know on the, the aisles. Because you watched it vis-a-vis on staircases because you know there's not really a vantage point to watch them doing it and stuff. And I don't know. It's just it, I, I suffered that hangover from that. you know. And uh, 
the thing that I also think about a lot is it was five months earlier we had September 11th, you know, and which is yeah. and it's something that. Well, one of the one of the really plum assignments I got in the run up to the Olympics is I got to follow the torch mm-hmm. for a few days on the East Coast, and a photographer and I went to uh, Washington, Philadelphia, and New York. Oh wow! And uh, I think the big the big takeaway from that for me was uh, going out on a uh, Long Island ferry Long Island ferry boat uh, with um, families of. Uh, uh, police and firefighters who were killed in the uh, 9-11 attacks and uh, going out on the boat with them and circling around uh, <coughs> lower Manhattan to the uh, to, to ground zero. And uh, they had a ceremony there on the boat with the torch, oh, the wow. Olympic torch. Huh. And it was uh, incredibly moving and um, really something that you'll never forget because it was still just so fresh then and uh, I was really privileged to be able to cover that Um, because it was just, you know, it was still pretty raw at that point and uh, these people had just lost their loved ones and, uh, you know, to be able to be part of that and write about it was pretty special. When you kind of look over, uh, you've had so many experiences sports-wise at the paper. Is that probably the one that sticks out the most? Like when you kind of look back on what you've what you've seen and what you covered, uh, you know it's kind of a potpourri. Um, there's that. There's covering the '97 NBA Finals. Mm. I was kind of the Bulls guy that year. Okay. So I I went to Chicago like a week before the final even started <laughs> and covered the Bulls uh, wrapping up their conference finals. And then, uh, you know, that was the finals when Jordan took sick. Yeah, from bad game. pizza or were you the delivery man, Joe? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where he was in the locker room with the IV, and then he went out and scored thirty-seven to beat the Jazz. Uh, you know, uh, that was a real highlight for that. Did uh, being there and in that moment, you know, looking back on it now, it's kind of taken on this legendary status. But when you were there in the locker room, seeing that, did you? Did you have a sense of how big it would become, or was it kind of like, eh, it doesn't look that good right now? No, I think we knew. I think we knew after we yeah. watched it okay. that we were kind of watching some history. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, uh, for him to be able to, you know, pull the needle out and then walk out and just kind of dominate the game. Yeah. And you could tell he was sick. I mean, he, he was pale. He was, yeah. He was he was deathly looking, yeah, you yeah. know, um, as much as an, an NBA athlete could be. Right, right. Uh, no, no, you knew, you knew, you knew yeah. that you were watching something uh, pretty significant. Mm. And, uh, you know, those two years, those two finals, they were uh, they were unbelievable. I mean, they were – after the Olympics, that's probably the biggest thing that's ever happened in this town, sport, do you, sports Do you think Jordan pushed up you, Russ? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he did, but nobody was going to make that yeah, call. No. <laughs> nobody. Nobody. Between uh, so three of the greats in the last time that you've been covering basketball, uh, Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and now with LeBron James, I mean, uh, how, do you, how do you compare the three of them? And are they just some of the greatest, or is Jordan just so high on top of the mountain that it's not even a comparison? Well, I, you know, I don't have any more insight on this than anybody else. I just count the rings. Yeah. You yeah, know. That's, and that's a good point. He's kind of, the, he's kind of still the club. Head. Well, after Bill Russell, Bill yeah, yeah. Russell yeah. got eleven of them, and uh, but yeah, Jordan is kind of it. I yeah. mean, I think for anybody, did you get a chance to do an interview with him? Like, uh, just as part of the big scrum. Okay, just as part of you know, 
Covering a, an Olympics or an NBA Finals as a reporter, you're you're one of hundreds, mm-hmm. and your 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 biggest task is just to elbow your way in so you can get a tape recorder. Okay. Up. Yeah. And, uh, and and you know it's it's a lot more formal now. It's a lot more organized. You go in an interview room. They sit at a table with a microphone. But back in those days. Mm-hmm. It was it was a scrum, I mean, and uh, you know, and when you're in the locker room too, breaking up between cameramen, you know, oh, wow. get out of my yep. way, yep. You're, you're, you're in, in my, my shot. shot, yep, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <clears throat> who's been uh, the favorite? Who's been the uh, the one interview that you enjoyed the most or most proud of? Oh boy. Or, or if there's a who's the Mount Rushmore of the guys or girls that you've interviewed? Well, for pure uh, sustained entertainment. Uh, frustration, many emotions rolled into one roller coaster ride. It's got to be Rick Majerus. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, the I, guy was uh, priceless when he was on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not so priceless when he was grumpy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, covering those teams day to day, being able to watch practice, uh, kind of interacting him with him and uh, – Really at close quarters because mm-hmm. we traveled with him. And uh, he, he, we had some very unorthodox locations where we did interviews. Let's, I'll just put it that way. With Kalu and Creams in hand? <laughs> no, 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 no. Very, uh, very much, uh, you know, uh, how shall I say this? Uh, I've interviewed Rick Majerus in, in virtually all states of undress. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, he's, he's famous for uh, being comfortable with his body. Uh, he <laughs> <Yeah>. was comfortable. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you covered Big Rick, you kind of worked on his hours. Yeah. So the thing I always liked about him was no matter if he was mad at you about something or not, he would always return your calls. It's just that he might return them at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> so, would that be on purpose? No, that's just when he got around. No, he was oh, a okay. famous night a night owl. Yeah, like uh, I think he was a guy that went to bed, and if I'm wrong on this one, but it, like he was a five six o'clock in the morning guy crashing out, and then he did all his business during the afternoons and evenings. Yeah, yeah. So he he would he would return your calls when he got to you. you know? <laughs> so I, I'm I, I'm not unique in that respect. Uh, a lot of a lot of people who covered him had that. So mm-hmm. so he was a really uh, interesting guy to cover. Yeah. Turned me on to one of my favorite books of all time. I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have known about it, and had he not recommended it to me. Which is uh, Norman McLean's uh, Young Men in Fire. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah about the smoke jumpers up in yeah, Montana. Yeah, yeah. He turned me on to that book. Wait, do I, wait, did he use it as a uh, kind of a reference, not a reference, but as inspiration for his players, or is that just one of those? No, he just show? said you got to read this book. And he's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this. So, yeah, if I was going to pick one guy who was just kind of endlessly uh, vexing and fascinating, he'd be that guy. How did uh, – did you have a lot of opportunities to interview Coach Sloan or um, work Not with so him? much because I was never really uh, on the jazz beat. Okay. They kind of brought me in, you know, when they needed extra bodies for the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I got to know him a little bit. A very, very, very nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, always remembered your name. Always, you know, happy to chat with you. Very, very, um, you know, informal, mm-hmm. easygoing, uh, very comfortable in his own skin. And, uh, you know, pretty funny guy, actually. Yeah. Pretty dry sense of humor. So, a uh, question I've wanted to ask you for a while uh, since doing this podcast, been, so I'm going to throw it out. But let's uh, pretend uh, uh, we both take a magical pill 
and uh, tomorrow I wake up and I'm the editor of the sports department, and uh, you're a guy interviewing for one of the beat assignments. Uh, with the current uh, structure of the sports uh, page right now, what beat would you like to cover for this upcoming year? What beat would I like to cover? And you can go as preps to jazz to the Utes, Utah State, BYU. I'll even let you do the Grizz. <laughs> well, That's my beat. Well, better, That's mine. The so I'll let you <laughs> well, I, I think, well, two, two beats are really interesting to me right now. I think the jazz are a really interesting beat because what they're trying to pull off here. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a complete, total ground-up makeover. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a long process. And they're getting their brains beat in again. And uh, I'm curious to find out if they know what they're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting to me, to watch to watch these young guys develop, to watch Quinn Snyder develop, uh, to find out if Dennis Lindsay's plan is going to roll out the way he wants it to. Yeah. Did he, did he miss on anybody? Did he miss on Trey Burke, for instance? Mm-hmm. Which... You know, I think that's the big criticism of the Jazz right now is they don't have a point guard. Yeah. You know, um, can those guys develop? Uh, the other interesting story to me right now is uh, Utah basketball because, you know, Larry Kraskowiak has uh, – he inherited arguably the worst major college basketball program in the country when he got here. I mean, the worst. And it, and it wasn't just the worst because – they didn't have a whole bunch of talent. It it was the worst because about six guys walked out the door, mm-hmm. including a guy like Will Clyburn, who was kind of a borderline pro. Mm-hmm. Um, some really good players left in addition to just graduation and all that. So when Larry got here, it was ashes. And to see what he's done with that in uh, the span of – you know, less than four years is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, they they hung with Kansas. They were uh, they were a, a break or two away from beating Kansas yeah, yeah. on the road, mm-hmm. and uh, handled Wichita State. I mean, almost perfectly. You know, and 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 Chris Kowiak is not only a very good coach, but he is a very good recruiter. I yeah. mean, he's he's brought guys in here. Well, I saw Jakob Pertle today is listed as yeah. number thirteen on Chad Ford's draft right. board. Thirteen. Right. Wow. Yeah. Now, I don't agree with that. <laughs> well, I, I've seen him play a couple times now, yeah. and he's yeah. a, he's going to be a very good player, but he, he's still – he needs some He polish, has a ways to go, yeah. And he needs some work in the weight room. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, uh, thir- but that just tells you how starved NBA teams are for a big guy who can play. Mm-hmm. And if, I'm, mista- if I'm not mistaken, the, the, uh, the youths joined the Pac-12 about four or five years ago, right? 2011 was first. Uh, 2011, 2012 would have been their first. So Coach K, season. he came in, you know, with the uh, yes. schedule that he probably you wouldn't want to wish on your worst enemy that first year. Well, yeah, I mean, he, yeah. you know, they, they, they really, uh, you know, uh, in terms of their non-conference, it was pretty easy, easy pickings for the first two years. And in fact, you know, to hear him tell it, they improved much more than he thought they were going to because last year. They had kind of another schedule filled with cupcakes in December. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we wrote a story about it and really annoyed him, <laughs> from what I understand. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it may have ended up costing them an NCAA tournament berth because yeah. their strength mm-hmm. schedule just wasn't very good, even though they were a 22-win team and they'd, 
you know, finished in the top half of the Pac-12, and you know, but obviously he's addressed that issue yeah. this year because yeah. they're they're playing uh, a lot of really good teams this year. They, but I but I think it's come along so fast that uh, I think even he was caught by surprise. Yeah. How, how much of a talent? Because you were here when the Utes were good, you know, under Majerus. How much? How much can the Utes own the town? Um, it, it, the basketball team. You know, I, I think, I, I think those days are gone. Yeah. I don't think, with the jazz in town, in which the rise of college football, mm-hmm. uh, or co- at least college football in this state. Right. I don't think they can ever own the town again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they can, they can be a pretty significant presence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I went to the Wichita state game and, uh, it was like the old days in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had almost 15,000 people there and it was rocking. And, uh, you know, when the Huntsman center has that many people in it, it's a very tough place to play if you're an opposing team. That's a great venue. I'm definitely home court advantage. That student section is yeah. just right on top of the, the yeah. opponent's bench now. Yeah. And it's pretty good student section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and they really are right on top of you. They, I mean, they really the, are. the way it's set up where the, the stands are raised a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the NBA coming here, the Jazz, you know, having that just incredible uh, sustained run of excellence uh, really, you know, turned this into an NBA town. Um, and then Utah, you know, the Urban Meyer, Kyle Whittingham, you know, even Ron, going back to Ron McBride, yeah. you know, Utah football which had never been that big a deal before, suddenly a huge deal. And, uh, I mean, I look at the web now. Utah's in a bowl game. You can't give Utah fans enough stuff to read about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just, they just go right after it, you know. Um, really, to BYU levels, yeah. I've, been, oh, yeah. I've been noticing. Yeah. Um, well, you know. I'm glad you brought up BYU because that's one of the questions I, I had for you was uh, with not having a Ute and a Cougar game with, for football uh, – as just the editor of the paper, I mean, how much do you miss having that game every year? Oh, you know, I don't know. I, th- I think the game should be played. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the rivalry. Um, lived it a long time. It's a classic to, rivalry. It's a top I, 15 in the nation rivalry easily. Yeah, and I went to the, you know, I went to the U as a student, yeah. so I'm an alum. And so, you know, I experienced it as a fan. Hmm. And, you, and you're from Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, born no, raised. well, actually, no, I'm from Seattle. Okay. But, uh, Moved here a long time ago. Okay. Um, no, I, I, I think it's really unfortunate that they uh, put it on ice for a couple years. I think it was a misstep. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that if Chris Hill had to do it over again, he wouldn't do that. Yeah. Because he just, the, the reaction was so adverse. And uh, I, I think once they resume it again, I don't think it's going to go on hiatus anymore. Uh, it's just too important to the state. It's just yeah, it's woven a- into the fabric of the state. And uh, and the thing that's hilarious is, um, you know, they may not have played, but if you read the comments on any Utah or BYU <laughs> football story, that rivalry lives on. It, it Typically, you'll look at the comments and you'll see about maybe three posts about the actual story. Yeah, yeah. And then a troll from the other side jumps in, <laughs> yep. and it's on, baby. They're yep. just going back and forth for 300 comments. Right. Mm-hmm. You right. know, and, you know, you, you get down through the first page of comments, it's like, okay. <laughs> it's, it's already degenerated. There's right. nothing to be learned from this. So Every play is, is well, that wouldn't have happened against us, or we would have torched you even more on that, you know, yeah. an 80-yard touchdown. Well, we would have gotten 85 yards on it. Yeah, yeah and, you know. 
oh, you stink in the Pac-12. You're not right. very good. Yeah, you don't even play in a league. You don't play <laughs> in a I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. Well, you know, Kevin talks about his Syracuse uh, uh, alumni status. And, you know, I just learned today from this conversation that you're a Ute alumnus. Uh, I've been busted on the podcast in the past of saying we, when I'm talking about the Utes, even though I didn't even go to college at University of Utah, it's just it, it does have that feel. But um, is it is it painful sometimes as an alumnus to uh, to be writing stories where you have to tear apart the team? Or is it just the job and this is what you do for nah, a living? No, you compartmentalize it. Yeah. I, I've gotten pretty good at doing both. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I watch on TV, I'm a fan. and mm-hmm. uh, But when I'm planning coverage and, uh, you know, talking over stories with my reporters, it's, uh, it's all about the story. It's mm-hmm. not about, you know root for the home team. I mean, uh, I, I think it's I think it's established now that I have some issues with Utah in terms of how they how they uh, you know dole out access to my reporters. Like closing off so, closing practice and so, stuff. Yeah. So I mean, I've had some issues with them. So I I don't have any problem uh, you know being a sports editor and uh, you know looking at them like an, just another beat we cover. It's a big beat we cover. Yeah. But, uh, Definitely you know, moves the needle. When I'm uh, when I'm working, and uh, that's most of the time, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I, I don't look at them as anything but you know this team we cover. Looking back through the last twelve, because we're getting up towards the end of the year and stuff like that, what have been some of the bigger stories this year that you you're proud that your guys were able to cover and uh, report both feature work, enterprise work, and uh, maybe a particular game coverage? Does anything kind of s- stand out to you um you know the one package i thought our ncaa reform package was pretty strong this year mm-hmm. uh that uh, matt and kyle teamed up for um they kind of shed light on <clears throat> kind of the plight on the average athlete who competes in college athletics mm-hmm. and how at least under the old system um you know they went they went begging sometimes. I mean, they didn't have enough money. Their stipend didn't cover the full cost. I mean, you know, athletes going hungry. Athletes not having enough money to pay the rent. Um, you know, just just kind of a, a, a window on something that's been going on for a long time, but I don't think people realize because I think the popular perception of a college athlete is that uh, – you know, they're uh, they're rolling in nice cars and they get all this free stuff and and uh, they have a pretty charmed life. But you know, really, if you, to play even college sports at that level, uh, you know, you got to make some sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm happy that they, you know, the NCAA and the Pac-12 are are doing these reforms because I think I think every as much time as these athletes put into their sports. They've also got to carry a full load of classes. I mean, they can't work. Um, so they should be compensated for the full cost of, you know, their uh, college experience. Something, you know, you look at the SEC television package that just came out, and I think it's going to net somewhere in the neighborhood of like $600 million or something outrageous in advertising revenues. And I don't know what Pac-12's network is going to generate. Do you think there should be a percentage of that money gets doled out to the players over the course of the season, or should it be put in – or should I'll just ask a question? Do you think some of these uh, do could should college players be paid to play? I think here's what I think. I, I think full cost is a big step forward. I do think in terms of merchandising, if somebody wants to use a college athlete's like like likeness in a video, in a video game, game or something like that, 
for uh, a jersey number with a name on the back of it or a poster, I think those players ought to benefit from the use of their image, just like anybody else mm-hmm. who who uh, makes money off their likeness. I think I think these college athletes. Now, is that fair? You know, because what about all the guys that don't have their likenesses used? Well, the guys on the practice squad. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, you know, probably not. But but I think if you're a star quarterback or a running back and you're a marketable commodity, I think you should be able to take advantage of that. I don't know about, you know, I, I'm 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 not quite there yet with doling out salaries. Um, might get there eventually, but right now I think if the colleges and universities can kind of compensate these athletes at full cost, um, so they can have a you know a, a quality of life while they're in college, then I I think for right now that's good. But I do think. I do think individual athletes should be able to benefit from uh, their likeness and image if it's used. There's a I don't remember where I heard or read this, but they were saying that if you took the five major conferences and they seceded from the NCAA and formed their own college association with there, and uh, you know, is the NCAA, in your opinion, do you think the NCAA is antiquated? Like, are they moving too slow, and that they still have a model? Yeah, I think I think they're. I think in many ways they're an anachronism at this point. Um, I think, and I think eventually, you know, those power conferences are probably going to break away and mm-hmm. do their own thing, because the game they play has just got very little to do with the game everybody else plays. You know, because you know, and and there's value in NCAA swimming. You know, there's value in, in soccer and baseball. I, I mean, I think sure. I think it's wonderful, but the reality is that it's just never going to generate those multi-million-dollar viewing packages. Well, it's 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 that the, the the issue is that you've got schools that are operating on completely different economic planes. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, really, really different economic planes, and. You know, it, the the really hard thing has been trying to manage the menagerie all under the same umbrella. And <clears throat> I just, long term, I don't think that's sustainable. No. With, uh, well, let's I'm move on to a different subject as, as we're kind of wrapping this show up. But uh, bowl games coming up this year. Obviously, the Utes are going to the, uh, was it Purple Nurple? <laughs> yeah, I the, believe so. The, the Vegas Bowl and stuff like that. But uh, being, uh, you, Started off as a sports there in 2008. Uh, if you can, between the Fiesta, if we had to do the Fiesta Bowl and the Sugar Bowl 2004-2008, who do you think would win that game today? The Alex Smith versus uh, Brian um, Johnson. Johnson. I'm going to take that 2004 team mm-hmm. uh, just because they were just such a juggernaut. And, you know, the 2008 team was very good. I mean, like, I think eight guys off that team are in the NFL now. Yeah. Uh, would have been a pretty good game, but I think I would have taken uh, 2004 just because Alex Smith was just such a dominant, you know, quarterback. And Brian Johnson was really good, but I don't know that he was dominant. Yeah. You know, so uh, probably the defense on that 20, 2008 team was probably a little better. Mm-hmm. But man, the offense on that 2004 team, and it, it's just to this day, it's just a shame that they couldn't really uh, uh, demonstrate it in a, against a quality opponent in that Fiesta Bowl because that Pitt team wasn't really very good. No. They were, you know, they were pretty pedestrian, and Utah just, you know, destroyed them, basically. 
Um, so, you know, that would have been fun. It would have been, you know, that, that year, that team, you know, if you, if you had the college football playoff now, that would have, that would have been quite a debate yeah. over whether that team could have gotten into the top four. Mm-hmm. You know, you had Auburn that year that was unbeaten too, so I don't know. Maybe they would have, maybe Auburn would have ended up four and Utah five. I don't know, but, uh, but that was a very good team. That was yeah. a very good team. Sort of an uh, open-ended question to where, as we wrap this up. is like, where, where is the, the future of sports coverage here at the Tribune? Is it going to – we obviously the guys are still going out, covering their beats, gathering information, generating great content, great stories and stuff like that. But uh, we were talking at the beginning of this uh, show about Twitter and just online. Is it weird to see print not dying but necessarily being how people consume the news? And how, how do you address that? just to kind of make sure in the future that you're ahead of the curve as opposed to behind it? Well, I think it's just, you know, you're continually evolving. Um, I think we see where it's going. Mm-hmm. We haven't quite figured out how to monetize the whole thing yet to, to, the, to the point where you could, you could put this kind of staff on, on the floor without a print product. Because that still pays an awful lot of bills. Because I, 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 but I, but I live, I live. You know, Kevin's totally digital now, but I, I live in two worlds, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, um, you know, the web, the website of things is where, you know, you, you just gotta, you can't get too caught up in worrying about one over the other. You got to do both, and and the print's important because we've got paying customers there. And you want to give them a good looking section every day. Yeah. Um, but you also, you know, you got to turn the stories out when they arrive. You've got to keep it. You got to keep it moving. You've got to be uh, breaking stories. You've got to be, um, you know, on all sorts of platforms. I mean, you know, the fact that just in this very short amount of time, people have migrated from their PCs and laptops to mobile devices is just the speed with which that happened is just kind of astonishing to me. Well, we, and, it's, yeah. and, and it makes it, it makes it, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering what, what's going to be the next thing. Well, because yeah. like, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who subscribes to the paper and loves picking it up off my front porch, but unfortunately I read the majority of it on my phone and online. And so I have the copy of it sitting on the, the kitchen table, but it's, it's weird. It, it's weird that I feel like, you know, when you pay for the paper, you get the privilege of participating with the paper, but a lot of times it's a lot easier to consume the information online, you know? Well, I love, I love the print too. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an old guy. I, uh, you know, I'm the same way. Hit in the porch, pick it up, get the coffee going. Exactly. And, uh, move in together, you know, reading the sun, (laughs) reading the Sunday Tribune and the Sunday New York times is still one of my great pleasures in life. Mm. Uh, but yeah, but if I want to see, you know, if I want kind of the current up to date stuff, I want to see, what Chris Camrani has blogged this morning about the latest on RSL, so, yeah. I go, I got to go to my phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, it's um, crazy when you think about it. That's how I kind of keep current is just on my phone uh, when I'm away from the office. So uh, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, they, they, to me, because I'm just such a newspaper junkie and because of what I do, to me they kind of complement each other. Um, but, you know, I've got to – at all times, being be paying attention to both, mm. you know. And as a guy who strings for you, <coughs> I, <I'm, coughs> excuse me on this one, but as a guy who strings for you, I'm going to tell you this: that I never thought the money is, is what it is, but there is no price tag you can put on getting a byline in the newspaper. 
It's it's still a sec- big still a big thrill. There is I, I, I've never not been just pleased as punch every time you open up the paper and it's like holy Toledo. I that's me, you know. And well, and I gotta I gotta say, I mean, right up until the last story I ever wrote, I love seeing my byline in the paper. It's it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's what keeps coming back. So we're gonna end on that note there. Um, follow the show on Twitter at uh, at Trip Radio. Of course, follow Kevin Winter Morris at at yeah. K Winmo. Uh, Joe Baird has less followers than me, so let's definitely get him a couple of more at J-B-A-I-R-D. I'm your host, Ben Raskin. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much. For Tribune Sports Radio, this is Ben Raskin. Our weekly podcast is recorded every Tuesday. Subscribe to the show on iTunes at Trib Sports Radio. And while you're there, please rate the show and give us some comments to help improve the podcast. All of our reporters' work can be found at sltrib.com. Please follow us on Twitter at Trib Sports Radio. Tweet us questions and the fellows will be happy to answer them. Or if you feel like writing an email, send it to Tribune Sports Radio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.